Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget you can listen to my Times Radio show live on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, and on the Times Radio app, Monday to Friday. 10 till 1. But we bring you the big thing in the Columnist panel every day on the podcast. Today's big thing, would you like to work just four days a week? There's been a massive trial uh, to see if you can fit five days work into four. Loads of businesses think that you can. We'll hear from some of them. And we'll also try to work out if it might actually help the economy or not. So that's coming up in just a moment. Finkelvich will be here in a moment. But, of course, the big political story of last week was Nicola Sturgeon uh, resigning as the leader of the SNP and First Minister. This week, it's all about who's going to replace her and the big question of faith in politics after Kate Forbes, one of the candidates uh, to replace her, uh, was asked about her faith. So we thought we'd bring you a little bit of this. CCHQ, Chorley Campaign Headquarters. Yes, we're heading north of the border to get our very, to dip into the very latest. It's already hotting up. They've been going in a couple of days. It's already hotting up. The, this is CCHQ uh, with our armchair generals taking a look at the SNP leadership contest. Uh, we say good morning to Kieran Andrews, uh, Scottish political editor for The Times. Morning, Kieran. Morning, Matt. Uh, where are you this morning, Kieran? I am in not quite sunny Dundee, about to start making my way to Edinburgh. Very good, very good. And Rachel Watson, please go to the Scottish Sun, was in a lay-by yesterday. Is it any more glamorous today, Rachel? Good morning. It's slightly more glamorous. I'm in Edinburgh this this morning, so at least I'm not in a rainy lay-by. So, uh, just before, just after we spoke uh, yesterday, we were waiting confirmation of Kate Forbes' uh, campaign launch. She put out a very glossy video uh, about 11 o'clock uh, yesterday. Um, it would, I think that somebody calculated it was seven hours and 24 minutes before the, she then did her first interview where she was asked about voting. She, she said she would have, she would have voted against gay marriage in Scotland when it was made legal in 2014 because it clashes with her personal views as a member of the Free Church of Scotland. Uh, she said she wouldn't try to overturn the legislation, though, if she replaces Nicola Sturgeon. She was on Times Radio Breakfast this morning speaking to Asma. Let's just take a listen. In the same way that I would defend to the hilt your right in a pluralistic and tolerant society to live and to love free of harassment and fear, in the same way I would hope that people of faith could be afforded the right to practice mainstream religious teachings about marriage. In fact, those teachings are pretty common across the main religions of Islam, Christianity, Judaism and so on. So if we're saying that public office, or at least high public office, is barred 
to people of a particular faith or people who have a faith but can leave that faith um, as it were, or strip uh, elements of that faith. Mm. And it is getting into dangerous territory. So, uh, we'll talk in a moment. We're going to speak to Tim Fowen because when he was leader of the Lib Dems, he got into exactly the same uh, issue of his faith being at odds, not with, I don't think, being a politician, but with his own party's politics. Kieran, how serious is this, do you think, for her campaign? Is it given the number of SNP uh, colleagues who've already come out uh, to criticise her? Well, that's the big issue. It, it's a massive self-inflicted blow to Kate Forbes' campaign. What we saw overnight and in this morning was a series of backers. Now, um, this is particularly important when you remember that Hamza Youssef, the, the health secretary in Kate Forbes' main rival for the, the top job, is effectively backed by the SNP establishment. So there's a lot of um, senior supporters within um, the elected ranks of the of the party. Kate Forbes has, uh, saw four backers, including one of her own junior ministers in the finance department, Tom Arthur, withdraw their support for her. Um, and other people connected to the campaign who were um, were reasonably influential and well thought of in the party have said they'll have nothing to do with the campaign anymore. So it, it is a big blow because it just it takes so much of the momentum, so much of the um, you know the the potential um, the way that Kate Forbes could have used yesterday as a potential springboard. Um, it, that's just gone entirely, and it's put on the back foot, which is which is a pretty bad place to be when you're already starting as a slight underdog with the party machinery uh, not in your favour. Um, Rachel, were you, have you been surprised by her? I mean, on, as a political operator, I mean, clearly she didn't necessarily expect to be throwing her hat into the ring, but um, for someone who was seen as a rising star of the party, she's the financial secretary. Um, she's got a senior job in government. Are you surprised that she didn't have a better answer to the question that might have kept her more strongly in the race? I think I was surprised that she came out with it so quickly. This was obviously something that was going to kind of dog her campaign. She was going to be asked about this. This was going to be, um, as soon as she declared, it was the, the topic, if you looked at the papers at the weekend, concerns about um, her views over several several areas. Um, with her religion brought up. So this was going to be the first questions that she was asked. I wasn't sure whether she would go for this approach. She's obviously taken the approach of be upfront, be honest, as quickly as possible in the campaign. And I don't know whether her team think if you do that, then it allows you to move on for the rest of the campaign. You know, you've spoken about it, you've said your view, and then we can move on and talk about the economy and we can talk about poverty and other areas that she wants to, to tackle. Um, I'm not quite sure that that's going to have worked because if you look, as Kieran said, at the support that's dropping off for her publicly um, and it's going to raise more questions. Every time Kate goes public or holds an event now, this is the question. People are going to ask her about this and, and how she would be as First Minister. Yeah. They'd obviously prepped for it. If you listen back to her answers on Channel 4, she had an example of Angela Merkel. So she'd obviously prepped for this and looked at what she could say and how she was going to say it. Um, but I'm not sure um, whether we expected her to say or address it in such honesty right from the get-go. Well, Humza Yousaf is also, as we, Kira was saying, is the front, uh, front runner, or seems to be in the race. He uh, took the opportunity to contrast his approach to faith uh, a bit differently. This was him speaking on LBC last night. Look, I'm, I'm a Muslim. I'm somebody who's proud of my faith. I'll be fasting in Ramadan mm -hmm. in a few weeks' time. But what I don't do is I don't legislate 
I don't use my faith as a basis of, 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 of legislation. Uh, what I do as a representative, as a leader, uh, as a member of the Scottish Parliament, is my job is to bring forward policy and pursue it in the best interests of the country. Do you think, I mean, it's a slightly more elegant way of sidestepping it, even if it does raise the question of why you wouldn't legislate according to your, your own faith and beliefs. Um, but presumably he's 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 sort of climbed over that uh, the landmine a bit with a bit more elegance, Kieran. Well, he, he has. Uh, Hamza Youssef has um, given, I suppose, more of a politician's answer, but also an answer that will... Um, that will be far more welcomed by by most of the SNP membership, you'd imagine. Although, what is interesting about that is Kate Forbes has obviously been asked hypothetical about whether she would have voted for or against um, same-sex marriage when it was introduced at Holyrood in 2014. Hamza Youssef, she wasn't an MSP at that time. Hamza Youssef was an MSP and was absent from that final vote. He voted for the general principles at stage one, but not to approve the law in the final vote because we're told he was away on ministerial business, which best we can tell was a meeting with a diplomat in Scotland. So I suppose if you were to be critical of Hamza Youssef, you'd say that's all very well and good what you're saying. You're saying the right things. But when you had the opportunity, you didn't you didn't vote for the thing that you, you said you believe in so, uh, so strongly. Uh, well, we'll keep across this, and because it? it's still Friday, isn't it? When we find out actually how three people in the race so far, Rachel, do we expect anyone else to join it before Friday? No, I think we look. I mean, there's three people in the race, but whether Kate has kind of dealt this fatal blow to her campaign or not, um, it, it's really a two horse race between Kate Forbes and Hamza Youssef, and there's no other senior people that we expect or anybody we expect yeah. to join the race. Ash Reagan is obviously in there, but um you know, she doesn't really have much of a chance of, of becoming the next First Minister. Well, we'll check in with you uh, throughout the week. I'm sure that was our CCHQ panel, Kieran Andrews and Rachel Watson. Thanks very much for guiding us through this uh, this race. Now, one person's name has been bandied around an awful lot this morning. It's the name Tim Farron. He came under huge pressure during the 2017 general election when he was leading the Liberal Democrats over his faith and whether or not that went against his party's policy. So uh, we thought, well, what better way uh, to deal with it and speak to Tim himself. Good morning, Tim. Now then, Matt, you all right? I'm very good. I'm very good. This must seem like um, uh, a horribly sort of retro deja vu episode for you. Are you surprised that, what are we now, uh, six years on almost, that, that Kate Forbes' faith has become the centre of the story on day one of her campaign? No, I'm not surprised. Um, but I think, as your previous commentators have uh, have said, um, I think she has prepared for this in ways that perhaps I I, I didn't. And I think in the end, um, the the question is whether or not um, we are tolerant of people's faith in politics if it's anything more than cultural. I think we're kind of all, we, I think there's an assumption, isn't there, that there's an absence of faith. We don't really believe in God. That's a silly, old-fashioned, ridiculous, superstitious thing. We don't believe in God. But if you want to, all right. Um, but you know, the minute it becomes something that might affect your worldview, we're not happy. In which case, we're not tolerant liberals at all, are we? And I suppose that's the point, isn't it? That that um, we don't mind people doing the the the, the cultural displays of whatever religion. Provided they don't start cutting across uh, their view. I mean, it struck me as odd that, that I think both Kate Forbes and Humza Yousaf, to various degrees, are basically saying, um, I would not legislate according to my beliefs, my faith. And that strikes me as a bit odd. Yeah. Why, why would you hold those beliefs and then not legislate according to them? 
I agree. So I think I hold two views at exactly the same time that you might think are um, contradictory, but they're not. Uh, one is, I do not think I have the right, nor do I think it's in any way profitable, to legislate to make people who are not Christians live as if they were. I think it's illiberal. I think the gospel doesn't encourage us to do that. At the same time, I also think exactly what you've just put out there, which is, of course, people of faith allow their faith to affect their politics, and so they should. Every single human being has a worldview, every one of you. And you may think you have no beliefs whatsoever, but you do, you're not neutral. And so in which case, it's okay for somebody who's, you know, a Marxist, for example, to bring what they've learned from Das Kapital into the room, but not to take what you believe from the Bible. That's nonsense, isn't it? The fact is there is no neutral space in the public square and a genuinely liberal society is one where we bump up against each other respectfully and are helpfully, healthily curious about why people think things that are different. Is the problem not that you shouldn't have faith in politics? The question seems to be, and it's the question that you were asked when you were leading the Liberal Democrats, the question that Kate Forbes was being asked when trying to lead the SNP, is not uh, you shouldn't have faith in politics. It's how does your faith mm. fit with the progressive liberal uh, policies of the particular party that you're in, that the Liberal Democrats are pro-gay marriage, so are the SNP. If you believe that, that gay marriage, gay sex is a sin... Um, how does that? How do you square your faith with being in that particular political party, rather than say a political party who who doesn't support gay marriage? But if you if you think people have the right to make their own choices and you respect everybody and you think people are of equal dignity and of significant equal and lofty significance, then you know I'm very comfortable as a person who is a centre left uh, liberal and and. I mean, I, I remember I, I joined the Liberals when I was 16. The leader at the time was David Steele. He said something which is very powerful to me, which is said any, any liberal who doesn't disagree with at least 10% of liberal policies isn't really a liberal. So I'm delighted to belong to a party that doesn't require me to be an automaton. And I, I hope that's the case of the SNP too. You've uh, you've written a book on this, and I know you've got you've got a podcast on it as well, discussing the the possibility of whether or not you can be a person of faith and hold high office. Do you think that this episode again suggests that the two things are incompatible, that essentially politics is now uh, secular, that there is no, that, that someone with with anything beyond, I've put up a Christmas tree, I've lit some candles for Diwali, anything anything which where your, your, your religious beliefs actually mean something bars you from high office in politics? I kind of want to say no. I mean, so I know it's not the highest bar of uh, of all, but I did get to be leader of the Liberal Democrats. So we, and you know, and you've got Ian Blackford, who's led the SNP in Westminster, who's a committed Christian, um, others as well in, in in positions of high office. And Kate is in the final two, probably, to become the first minister of Scotland. So if there is a ceiling, it's pretty high up. But then again, to an extent, yes, what you say is is right. But it's not just now. The idea that Christianity is this old-fashioned thing and we modern people are dispensing with it, um, it's rubbish, isn't it? A thousand different worldviews have said that about Christianity for 2,000 years. And the delicious irony is those other thousand worldviews are all lying in the dust and we've forgotten most of them. So the fact is that Christianity is always, always, always countercultural, And therefore, we're meant to rub against, you know, graciously, gently, against a society where we are living. And Christianity will outlive the worldviews that are currently predominant. Of course they will. 
the response of Christians, though, is important. I always say, as a Christian, I'm not offended by this sort of stuff at all because we're promised trouble. We're promised to be had a go at. It's, I mean, it's not like we're in North Korea or Iran where it's genuinely a risk to our lives to believe in, in Christ. Um, it's just merely a bit inconvenient for us. That's kind of the way it is. And what are we meant to do in response to, um, you know, people having a go at us? It's not to whine about being cancelled. It's to turn the other cheek and model a kind of love for the enemy that is so utterly countercultural that it might actually draw people to the gospel. What do you just finally, what do you think is the right course for Kate Forbes? Is it to, as you ended up doing under pressure and not, I don't think, believing it, saying that you, when asked, is gay sex a sin, you said no, because ultimately in the end, that was the way to sort of get through what became a big media storm. Should she stick to her faith, even if that means she doesn't become first minister? Or yeah, in politics, yes. do you have to put that to one side in, in, in order to do all the other things she thinks might be right for the people of Scotland? So um, martyrdom is a noble cause. We shouldn't go looking for it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, if you can be careful um, and uh, avoid the topics that might finish you off, then that's that's a that's a perfectly wise and acceptable thing. But if you're going to get pressed on these things, it's far better to be straightforward and honest. And there are people who will have walked away from Kate Forbes, um, just as I'm sure there are people who walked away from me. Um, I'm not sure who that says the most about. Um, and I think that Kate is uh, wise to say this stuff early. And if people decide, OK, you're not the one for us, then that's how things are. Far better to be up front now um, uh, than it to become an issue later down the line when people can say, yeah. oh, you never told us. So I, I kind of think, first of all, I think there's a very good chance that having been up front early on, there is no gotcha moment yeah. and and that things will move on. I have to say, um, she may be my sister in Christ, but she's my opponent and I'm, desper <laughs> I'm desperately opposed, desperately opposed to independence. Honestly, She's the one I'd fear the most because I reckon she's got the ability to capture middle ground people who are moderate unionists in Scotland. If I if I want Scotland to remain in the UK, I probably don't want Kate Forbes to win. Tim Farron there joining me on Times Radio. Now, to reflect more on the role of faith in politics, it's time for this. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Ah, we say a very good morning. In, in the studio, clutching his can of Diet Coke is Danny Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And beaming in live from home, what are you, what are you clutching, David? <laughs> what are you trying to suggest? Oh, I don't know. It could be your I mean, pearls. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's nice, to, nice to have you both here. Let's let's go diving straight in to uh, a nice, easy question: Is it possible to have faith in politics, Danny? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, uh, I, I, you know, I, I believe that we have a. Um, a very strong liberal democracy in this country that under the rule of law but that doesn't mean that you trust every politician and what everybody says and i you know i've been very concerned as as anybody who reads my column in the paper knows about uh, the the running the erosion of standards um but the reason why i answered in the way that i did is because i think it's very dangerous if we start to go oh you can't trust all politicians you then begin to normalize 
bad behaviour and you don't, don't call it out. Uh, so there is actually there is actually a strong reason for, for for not doing that, for not having a sweeping view. All politicians are liars. All politicians are on the take. All politicians, um, you know, re- refuse to answer the question because at that point you you then stop send stop. Uh, asserting that each individual must live up to the highest standards because you are basically saying it's true of everybody. So that, there's there's a reason why I'm resistant to the, to the sort of sweeping statement that you can't trust politicians. <laughs> uh, the trouble is, the trouble is, Matt meant something completely different by the question, <laughs> didn't you, Matt? Come on, let's face it. Man, because you phrased it in a clever way, this is a way of getting in to talk about this SNP person, isn't it? Yes, Kate Forbes. So Kate Forbes... Yeah, Kate uh, Forbes. The so, financial so Danny secretary, took running, running to be leader of the SNP, uh, but has strong Christian faith and has said that she wouldn't have voted for gay marriage had she been an MSP at that point. David, D- yeah. David what, what's your, your view on this? Because there were some people saying, oh, it's terrible that uh, any politician would t- take this view uh, like now in the 21st century. I think my view is it's fine for her to have that view. I just find it a bit odd that she's in the SNP. I think that's... But I don't, what, what do you think? It's it, it's a strange one, this, and I've thought about it many times over the years. Uh, it, it really uh, uh, arose in a big way over questions like, well, a long time ago, actually over capital punishment, but I was just a kid then, but more latterly over abortion. So the argument was uh, this. Um, would your uh, religious view mean that you could... You sh- your views should be respected in terms of the political stance of the party of which you are, are a member or the government of which you might be part. Uh, it was simply that. So, for example, if the Labour Party uh, or the Conservative Party is committed to a woman's right to choose, would we be right to think that somebody who would vote against this would be properly representing the outlook of that party if they said that their reasons were religious? And actually, it's a it's a strange kind of exemption in many ways. Um, we might make it. I mean, other questions where this will rise in the future in a much much bigger way. I think are over things like assisted dying. Mm. Um, but uh, I find it difficult to see why it you, why it is that you would be obliged to say that somebody who would vote for or argue against, let's say, abortion rights, um, must have their position within a party that takes the different view safeguarded because their view originated in conscience you hope most of people's political views originate somewhere in conscience don't you and there's no total reason why religion should be exempted from that it's a kind of convention so i think it is it can be problematic the answer is i think the answer is it can be problematic and it depends what the issue is and how people want to uh, uh, pursue it well anyway, I'm, I'm very sorry for having misunderstood the question so much that i tried to answer it definitely that's, that's what's got kate forbes <laughs> into trouble she tried to answer the question i i i'm i was interested in what you said about um you, you thought it was odd that she was uh, in the snp with that position because of course the SNP originated, as you might imagine, from a party that um, wants to have an independent, you know, sovereign uh, state in, you know, whatever it happens to be, Pimlico or Scotland. Um, th- those parties are often quite conservative. So mm-hmm. uh, it's not, you know, from a historical point of view, it isn't surprising to find someone with quite conservative uh, views, perhaps religious ones, perhaps traditionalist ones, in in what is in some ways quite a traditionalist political movement. Yeah. Um, and I, 
you know, but I, I do, I am inclined to agree. And, and the other thing about it is, you know, what's obviously a shocking position as far as I'm concerned, and it actually happens to be one of my tests uh, when I deal with politicians, is what their position was on that issue. Um, you know, one has to accept that, that, that it's the position of millions of people, including, I'm sure, millions of Scots and millions of, you know, and, and, and certainly hundreds of thousands of Scots who want to have uh, a, a, an independent Scotland. It's interesting. Um, William Hague was on uh, Times Radio this morning and he said he didn't think you could get elected leader of the Conservative Party now with the views, devout religious views that Kate Forbes has. And he said, uh, if you want to be a leader, you have to decide whether you're accepting of what's become the national culture or not. Do you think that's, do you think that's right? Because that people might say that actually her views, painting caricatures of her views and the parties, are more what you might expect from some people in the Conservative Party. But do you think that's right, that, that, that to become leader of the Conservative Party, you couldn't be someone with strong Christian views? I think it would be hard. I'm not sure it would be impossible. Uh, maybe he's thinking of that, shall not commit adultery. Um, but the... Uh, the, <laughs> uh, the um, I don't know. Um, I, I wouldn't like to say you could not be. I don't think it would, would help you, um, and it would certainly become an issue. And certainly, you know... Um, one of the interesting things about the Conservative Party in the last uh, three to four years is that uh, one of the ways that the Republicans, for example, attempted to unite their prosperous voters with, as you might call it, their their populist ones, is by sort of ever increasing amounts of social conservatism. And the Conservative Party in Britain, uh, for all of the its other flaws and the other things that it's done to try to unite those constituencies, it hasn't done that. Mm. And, and uh, you know, I'm grateful for that. Um, David, do you think it's partly because as a society, I think there was some stats out last year, that sort of fewer than half of people said they had any faith, I think. Or maybe, I'm, maybe I'm exaggerating that. But in, a, when, in increasingly secular politics and secular media, it's partly that anyone with any political, um, any religious view is a sort of novelty that has to be poked and prodded until they can be... Um... <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we go, back to, we go back to Alistair Campbell saying we don't do religion because Tony Blair, of course, was famously religious. Um, but the, it's because uh, very the very idea of it is now such a turn-off to the so many more people there are who just don't understand well, faith. Whereas if, if, yeah, every, if mean, everyone had some faith... Christians might better understand Muslims having their view than, than people who have no faith at all who just find the whole thing a bit peculiar. I, I think the problem is the association of faith with certain kind of social beliefs, really, rather than, rather than the existence of faith. I mean, I think that the same uh, survey showed that people have beliefs, you know, the significant proportion of people have beliefs in higher deities, etc., all of which I would therefore count, uh, count as being religious. It's just organised religion uh, is not as popular as it ought to be. I mean, I would bet, uh, I'd be prepared to bet, that the majority of people who describe themselves as Christian in Britain now support gay marriage, for example, because there's been an absolutely fundamental change, and there's nothing as I can that I can see fundamentally in the uh, religious beliefs of Christians that makes them either anti-abortion or anti-gay marriage. It's just a matter of practice and doctrine in churches over the years. And practice and doctrine, although more, more difficult, with more difficulty, can change in, in, in religion as it, does it, as it does in politics. So I'm not at all put off by the idea of somebody who believes in God being prime minister. One of our best prime ministers, as I said, Tony Blair, 
was an active believer in God and it wasn't a terrible, and I'm not at all sure that Gordon Brown wasn't uh, a, 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 a believer of some kind. David Cameron, <laughs> I would be questions whether or not he was less sure of, and Boris Johnson, <laughs> and Boris Johnson, I would think is a dead cert as, a, as an atheist. David Cameron used to say that um, his, his faith was like magic FM in the Cotswolds. It sort of came and went. Yeah, and somebody uh, said that that was actually something that, Dave, that Boris Johnson had also said to him. Oh, okay. So maybe they both held it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, early this month, I had uh, Wes Streeting in the studio, the obviously Labour Shadow Health Secretary, and he was talking about whether or not his Anglicism was compatible with his sexuality. Let's take a listen. And my faith was and remains very important to me, and... It was the single biggest thing that made it hard for me to accept myself and to come out as gay. And I think the church underestimates the harm that it does. Um, and and I've it took me a long time to really reconcile my sort of theological view on this as well. Um, I have come to the sort of view that being gay and being Christian are um, compatible. Ah, oh, but after a lot of uh, considerations, but also within that, you insert that into politics. You get the. It's, it feels like you either have to make a choice between one or the other. Someone's just texted in saying, under PR, there would be a Christian party. I mean, because all political parties are now essentially secular. If you are a religious person who wants to go into politics because you want to improve the schools or you know, hospitals or or the economy, whatever it might be, you sort of it feels like you have to slightly leave your religion at the door, Danny. Yeah, um, I guess, look, I think David's made the point correctly, which is, you know, all of your politics comes from some sort of moral uh, position and the, the things that come from, I suppose, religious tradition are no different yeah. from that. And I, I'm, I'm a liberal Jew and my view has been, um, you know, you don't pray for millions of years without learning something and therefore I haven't got a problem with religion adapting to... Has is, is there uh, ever been a time where being Jewish in politics has been an issue for you? Well, I mean, it became a big issue in the last five years. And, no, um, I mean, like, from your... Was there anything that you and your party were doing... Oh, I see. Put, was it putting you in conflict with your faith? No. Um, that That's not, you know, that, that's not an issue. I mean, obviously, there are there are issues that arise as a result of being an immigrant, mm. um, but, um, you know, from an immigrant family as well. Yeah. Um, but which, there are, which is inevitably Which obviously faith, is yeah. linked, to, linked to faith. Uh, and there's certainly issues related to the experience of my parents, but not to not to the doctrine, no. And, and I... And I and I think that is because you're only one person. You can't really divide yourself off yeah, and say yeah, those yeah. views uh, <laughs> exist. You know, but the, the question is whether or not it's acceptable for the Scottish Nationalist National Party to be led by somebody who doesn't believe in gay rights effectively. Yeah. And, you know, I would certainly have a problem voting for them. But then I've got a problem voting for somebody to be led of the Scottish Nationalist Party, National Party who believes in an independent Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they're going to let you in, Daddy. Not after that comparison with Pimlico, anyway, earlier, <laughs> uh, for, which you are, for which, Danny, you are going to get letters. <laughs> uh, right, we'll move on. Still joined by Daniel Finkelstein and David Wanovich. Uh, we've managed to get to the bottom of why Danny was so confused at the beginning. When I asked, is it possible to have faith in politics? when I meant having a faith in politics, and you thought I meant just faith in the political system. Yeah. Obviously, he was fishing for us to have a discussion, which I kind of knew was coming up. And it's a bit like failing, <laughs> it's a bit like failing to realise you're supposed to tell an anecdote on the Parkinson's show. 
completely misunderstood what I was being asked. Anyway, anyway, we've got to the moment there. Lovely, lovely. Anyway, it was all credit to you for just still just talking, regardless of I have no idea what on earth I was talking about. Uh, yeah, so, it was a great answer to a different question. Yeah, it was thought, good. It anyway. was good. That's, what's, that's the joy of it. Um, uh, right, uh, back to Earth with a bump. Uh, Liz Truss is back. Let's take a listen. We need to do all we can as fast as we can. My view is that does include fighter jets. So let's work with our allies to get them an option. And we also need to make sure that they have the economic wherewithal to continue the fight. And we need to make sure we're continuing to support them internationally as well. And then up Port Boris Johnson. As uh, my rival, the Foreign Secretary, pointed out in his, his, his powerful speech, uh, he is running pitifully low on the technically advanced weaponry that he increasingly needs. The seemingly irresistible force of the Russian military is breaking, Mr Deputy Speaker, on the immovable object of Ukrainian resistance. Uh, that was uh, Boris Johnson uh, in the House of Commons. Is it a problem uh, for the Prime Minister this one, having both Liz Truss and Boris Johnson popping up in the House of Commons? Well, I'd hope you'd move towards their position. I think they're right. Okay. Um, I think that I think that um, Boris Johnson's, you know, thinking so what you like about him, but I think that uh, he's, he was early and right and robust and pretty articulate about Ukraine. Uh, and Liz Truss has sort of supported him in that stance. I haven't got a problem with him. I don't think it will be a. I don't think it will be a problem for the Prime Minister because I think insofar as he can move towards their position, he will. Uh, there are other bigger problems for him for emanating from that sort of uh, part of the Conservative Party, particularly on Europe, but I'm, I shouldn't think this is something that he can't meet. I think he's right. Yeah. Uh, David, would you like to congratulate Boris Johnson and say he's right as well? Um, well, he was right about Ukraine. I yeah. mean... Uh, yeah. um, and, but I think I think almost any mainstream uh, British politician would have been right about Ukraine. And one of the things that inter interested me is the way in which we simply haven't had to have the kind of discussion they've had in other countries about whether or not there should be a support. And in fact, it got me thinking, really, that if Jeremy Corbyn had by some miracle stayed as Labour leader, Labour actually would have split over Ukraine uh, last year. It actually would have had to have divided because it couldn't have stayed together if he'd taken the position yeah, as we think point. he would. But that's a kind of what that's a kind of what if, but this is a now. I have to say that hearing Liz Truss uh, say something which um, very much agrees with what I think suddenly makes me think I must be wrong. Um, you know, this is, it, it, it must be a kind of weird enthusiasm that I've somehow kind of misplaced. But no, it's not, by and large, it's not much of a problem when your predecessors tell you to try to do more of the thing that you want to do anyway. Um, it's not that that's going to determine whether or not our jets go to Ukraine, it's whether or not those jets are going to be useful and how soon they can get there. Well, I'll let you go off and have a lie down, David, and come to terms with the fact you now agree with Liz Truss. Who knew? Who knew? You've just, got to, you've just got to keep faith. You've just got to keep faith. Daniel Finkelstein and David Wanovich there. And, of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, would a four-day working week work? Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like, what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. But how would you like it if you only went off to work for just four days a week instead of five? Well, over the last six months, nearly 3,000 people working at 60 companies across the UK have been taking part in the world's largest ever trial of a four-day working week. So how does it work? Well, you get 100% of your pay for only working 80% of the time. But the big question is, do you get 100% of the work done and are there some jobs where it just won't work at all? Well, in a moment, we'll speak to some of the people who took part in the trial. But first, it was organised by the Four Day Week campaign alongside academic researchers in Oxford, Cambridge and Boston. And Joe Ryle, who's the director of the Four Day Week campaign, joins me now. Hi, Joe. Hey, Matt. You all right? I'm very good. I'm very good. So it, it, it's an awful lot of people. Who were they? Who took part in this trial? There were 60 companies that took part, 60 UK companies from a real wide variety of sectors of the economy, you know, kind of manufacturing, retail, financial sector, um, all sorts of sectors of the economy, which I think was the most exciting part of it, that across all those sectors, you know, the pilot has shown that the four day week with no loss of pay really works. You know, these results are a major breakthrough moment for a four day working week. We've seen well-being massively increased for all the workers involved. But on the other side, we've seen business productivity and performance maintained. And for that reason, almost every company that took part has decided to stick with the four day week at the end of the trial. I suppose to some extent, it's self-selecting, isn't it? If you had a a company which you just didn't think would work, you probably wouldn't have applied for it. I don't know. I think I think all the companies that started it went into it quite open minded. You know, it was like, let's see what happens. You know, there was no commitment at that point to stick with it. They were very aware they could have gone back on this at the end of it. But, you know, it has been a win win for both workers and employers with well-being going up, productivity maintained. And are there rules that everyone had to follow in terms of how the four day rather than five day week works? Or was it left to different businesses or even different staff to work out how they made it made it effective? Yeah. So the crucial kind of uniting factor was that it was kind of 80% of the hours while maintaining 100% pay. So some of those companies did it did it quite differently to others. You know, the most simple way was just to kind of shut operations for a day. So everyone's kind of off work for the same day. But for many companies, that wasn't possible. You know, so it's about kind of rotating days off to ensure the five day coverage, because you've got we've got to recognize that, you know, companies moving to a four day week today are moving to a four day week in which, you know, a society which is still dominated by the five day week, sadly, which, I, you know, we would argue is a very outdated model of work now Uh, and how does it work because if you know if you're i don't know 
if you've got a job where you sort of clock in and clock out, you're working on a till in a supermarket, you know, you go and do your hours and then you leave. If you're in a job where uh, maybe more of an office job, you take your, your work home, you end up working extra hours, evenings and, and weekends. How You know, so, so to try to work out the hours you actually work, what is the 100% you're trying to cut down to 80%? Did you have to be quite strict about that? Yeah, well, the companies tried different different ways of doing it. I mean, we had a, a fish and chip shop that took part that did uh, early start times for some half of the staff and then ending early and then, and then later start times and, and ending later. So there's lots of different ways of doing it. You know, I think the four-day week, four week needs to be as flexible as possible to allow businesses to decide how it would work for them. But, you know, it's not going to be... This isn't going to be a change that happens overnight for everyone. There's going to have to be a transition to get there. But absolutely, you know, we think that the vast majority of the economy could move to a four-day working week by the end of this decade. Obviously, the, the way it works, and it might go somewhere to tackling the productivity puzzle of why productivity is so low in the UK. But it's obviously because you want people to be working harder during those four days. And yet, at the same time, you've got a 65% reduction in the number of sick days. Uh, the number of people saying that, uh, uh, that, that they uh, were suffering from burnout was down. Uh, 71% of people said they, they had lower levels of burnout. How is that possible if you're working harder for the four days and yet people are less likely to be ill and less likely to be burnt out? But it's about working smarter rather than working harder. So it's looking at your kind of business output. You know, what is your what do you want to achieve at the end of your working week? What is your effective output? And being really strategic about that. You know, the businesses really spent a couple of months really planning for that. And actually, quite quickly, once you once you move to that way of working, you start to see bits of work that, you know, we all have bits of our work that we do that maybe isn't particularly contributing towards the, the wider goal of your organization and quite quickly you know companies seem to work more effectively more efficiently and also that's backed up by the fact that workers are better rested they've had that time to their, themselves you know they've got a better work-life balance so they're then then they're performing more efficiently and effectively in their job okay um joe uh, stay there because i want to bring in some of the people who took part in the trial uh claire daniels is chief executive at trio media which is a marketing agency in leeds hi claire hi how are you doing i'm very good i'm very good so explain what you did uh, in, introduce, how many staff have you got? How did you make it work with a four-day working week? Yes, well, I mean, we've now got 13, but we had nine people when we started on the trial. And for me, it was just a case of communication, taking people along on the journey with us. It was really important being in the service industry that we stayed open five days. So we split the team in two and did half working Monday to Thursday and the other half working Tuesday to Friday because it was also really important. We had some core days when everyone was working. Um, and, you know, going to the point you just mentioned about how do people get, you know, better work-life balance when they should be more burnt out squeezing four days in and you know we found that people that traditionally used to overwork and do overtime even in five days actually when we gave them the tools in how to manage their time better were able to finish on time when we went down to four and that was no reduction in workload but just given new tools and a new way of working in being able to manage what they need to do. Is that a slight admission that in the sort of the traditional idea of a five day working week, particularly in an office where, where you know, what you've achieved that day might vary to very degrees, um, that there's a lot of slack that what you're saying that actually if you if you everyone in a business has a bit of concerted effort, you can just get more done and you'll turn out that you're doing a whole load of stuff. You might be having more meetings because you've confused the idea with having meetings with uh, actually achieving something. And if you just cut all that out because you have to. Um, actually, there's quite a lot of slack in everyone's working day. Yeah, correct. So it wasn't so much that we found time was being wasted on people not working, but it is 
is the work they're doing the most efficient and best for business. So if we can take someone out of a meeting because it's not the best value and use of their time being in the meeting, then let's do that and have them focusing on the core responsibilities of their role. So it was all about making those slight changes to make it work for us. And it's that whole mindset shift of you're not cramming five days work into four because there's probably around 20% of your time that you're not being as productive or working on that core role as you could be. So those are the changes you need to make to make it succeed. When you said you'd gone from 30, from nine to 13 staff, had you had to take on those extra staff to plug gaps? We've had to take on those extra staff because we've had a 47% revenue increase whilst oh, okay, on the trial and our <laughs> business has gone through the roof because everyone's really happy. So, yes, we've needed the extra staff to cope with the demand. Very good. Uh, Claire, stay there. I want to bring some other. Paul Oliver is Chief Operating Officer at Citizens Advice in Gateshead. Hi, Paul. Hi there. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Explain what you did then at Citizens Advice. Yeah, so we have over 200 staff uh, working at Citizens Advice Gateshead, so it was quite a challenge logistically for us to uh, onboard into four-day week. So we started in the, the summer um, of last year, and we worked over a phased implementation period over about 12 weeks just to make sure that we were managing our business continuity and also working in a spirit of shared learning where people who went earlier were able to pass on that learning and that understanding to the teams who came later on. And did you have any problems? Um, well, actually, the the benefits and the effects started coming through pretty much immediately, um, where we, we saw that staff, because they were better rested, they were taking ownership for their work, they were becoming much more productive, and, and we saw some initial upsides um, pretty much straight away. I think where we had some, some challenges was around our contact centre operations, which is our telephone-based advice that we give. We found that um, that was very highly monitored um, to start with, and we are less in control of how we can frame a working day, simply because you have to answer the phone when it rings, uh, and we've got average call handling times that, that need to be met. So there were some challenges there, but overall, um, across the business, we saw lots of upside and, and lots of benefits. Um, and did you need more staff? Uh, do you because if you've got I don't know if you've got every day say ten citizens advice advisors dealing with people, if they're then only there four days rather than five, are you providing less of a service or are you um, spreading people out more? How do you how do you make it work? Because if you're I don't know if you you're running a shop or something, you need X number of people there five days a week, and so if yeah. you haven't, then you're going to need more people, aren't you? Um, so the, so we, we looked at our, our working day and we asked all of the teams who all operate very differently to, to manage their service and to manage their business continuity. And that looks at how we frame the working day. And, and one of the, the things that we've been looking at and using the four day week as a tool to, to leverage this is around breaking out of the nine to five model because our clients fall into crisis 24 seven and often some of our services are only accessible between nine to five. So some of what we've been doing as part of the trial is opening earlier um, and, and staying open later. And we're even looking at piloting the weekend service now as a result from this. And yeah. a lot of this is actually around looking at your client demand. And for most of the cases we were having bottlenecks where we just didn't have a, enough staff and resource to answer telephones or, or see people at certain times of the week. So say, for example, on a Monday morning or late on, on, on a Friday afternoon. So if you if you analyze your client behavior and adjust your services accordingly, you can provide a better service to your clients whilst also um, the staff benefits that come with four day a week as well. Is it slightly, Paul, we'll come on to Dawn who's on the line as well and just say, 
is all of this actually just slightly the, the process of applying for this was just to kick up the bum for the organisation, for you to just think, it, could we be working smarter? Are there things we could do to improve our service and make life slightly better for our staff? And you could have achieved quite a lot of that without going down to the four-day week. Possibly, but I, th I think the fact that this is actually tethered to organisational efficiency and optimal performance, there's a reward in there of time back for staff who, who come into this. And that's a relationship that is, that is always part of the four-day week and, and one that, that we very much hope to continue yeah. is that staff will always be invested in these marginal gains of improving performance. And, you know, this is very much a journey for us where we've been on this since the summer last year. And there's still so much that we can go at in terms of operational efficiency that will gradually get better and better um, the, the more that we go along this road. Okay, let's bring in Dawn then. then. Uh, Dawn is uh, Dawn Abernathy. Uh, Abernethy, yeah. thank you, uh, is the director of AKA Case Management. Uh, describe what you what you what you do, Dawn, and then what the uh, I know you're based in Nottingham. What you uh, how you found this process of the four day week? Um, we provide case management services for people with traumatic injuries, largely brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. Um, we've always had a well being focus, and we wanted to do something innovative in this area. So when the four day week came up, we absolutely jumped at the opportunity to take part in it. Oh. Our staff have reported that they feel happy, more valued, rested, um, and feedback from our clients pre and post trial has been that our services have actually improved. And how how is that possible when you're you've still got presumably the same number of people to to look after we have operated a similar model to claire where our staff take either a friday or a monday so our services are covered um five days a week we feel that if we look after our staff they're going to be able to care for our clients um better if we look after ourselves we can look after others and and we think that taking part in the four-day week has shown that. Has done that, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose I should ask you all the, the, the million-dollar question. I'll come to you all. Uh, Dawn, first of all, are you going... Now the trial has come to an end, all these statistics are very good, it's all worked very well, uh, are you going to stick with it? We are. We have, we're have. we pleased to say that we have adopted it permanently, yes. Oh, that's very good. So that's a big tick there. Paul, at Citizens Advice and Gateshead, are you sticking with the four-day week? Um, so because we onboarded later in, into the trial uh, and, and some of our teams didn't onboard until September, we're still analysing the data. So the, the initial data is looking very positive for us. Um, we're monitoring things like staff retention and, and sickness levels. And um, the journey isn't finished for us yet that we need to yeah. just get that final bit of data. So we'll be taking decision later on in the summer. Same question to you then, Claire. Uh, what, are you going to stick with it? Yeah, so we've continued. Um, I am going to wait till we get to a year to make a permanent decision on it because I felt like we needed longer as a business. But right now we are still doing the four-day week. Very good. Uh, really good to speak to you, Dawn, Paul and Claire. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Joe, you're still on the line. Uh, while we've been talking, we've had loads of messages coming in. Uh, some people pointing out there's quite a lot of uh, management jargon in this, but it's obviously real world, real journeys and all, all of that. Uh, but it's, quite, it's a real world thing. One question uh, which actually lots of people have, have been asking, 
Um, uh, there, clearly, there are some jobs this isn't suited to, aren't there? Uh, somebody says, what happens if teachers want a four-day week? Are parents meant to disrupt their working life to look after kids at home? Where's the productivity gain in that, says Alistair and Coulston. Are there some jobs or sectors where they just won't work, Joe? There's definitely sectors where it's going to be slightly more complex to implement. Um, but, you know, we take teaching, for example. I mean, that's a sector where the workers are completely burnt out, stressed, overworked, you know, is a sector where four-day week would really benefit the staff. And, of course, you know, as I said before, I think, you know, we, we are still dominated by this nine-to-five, five-day working week, so that makes things harder. But if we're talking about a society-wide transition to a four-day working week you know by the end of this decade and of course that's got to include teachers of course that's got to include everyone you know the four-day working week is about a better work-life balance for everyone and so it should be implemented on that basis so in in an ideal world in 10 years time we would be a four-day society so schools would only be open monday to thursday but that's fine because jobs are only monday to thursday Exactly. That is that is the long term vision. You know, it, yeah, it's going to take some time to get there. Um, it took about a decade to, to shift from a six day working week to a five day working week 100 years ago. But, you yeah. know, we think it can be done. And also just one extra point, if you think about automation, new technology still to come, you know, there is a diminishing amount of work available anyway. So we are going to have to be strategic about sharing work more equally across the economy. And that's where shorter working week comes in. And you're in Parliament today uh, talking about this, um, trying to persuade, what, ministers, MPs? Where does it go next? Yeah, so the Labour MP Peter Dowd is, is chairing a session today. We've got a real mix of cross-party MPs coming to find out more. Um, we're hoping, you know, that... Firstly, we're hoping that, you know, more and more companies begin to roll this out, uh, you know, across the country. Secondly, we, you know, we do think there is a role for politicians. You know, there's policies that can be implemented to enable this transition from trials in the public sector, um, you know, giving workers the right to through flexible working legislation to at least have the right to request a four day working week. And there's also probably a role for trade unions as well in kind of organising with workers to demand a four day week in their workplace. So there's lots that can be done and, you know, it's going to take some time to get there. Joe, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Joe Wilde, the director of the four-day week campaign, is Matt Shoddy on Times Radio. Talking about the four-day week after a massive trial uh, found it. Everyone loved it. All works very well. Makes you work harder and smarter. Is it realistic, though, that this could become uh, the future of uh, working in Britain? Let's now speak to David Smith, who's the economics editor at the Sunday Times. Hi, David. Hi, Matt. Uh, nice to talk to you. Are you surprised by these results? I mean, it sounds like a great idea. And I can see if you're running a marketing company or or, or even a sort of organisation with a couple hundred people in it, you probably can squeeze things up a bit. Turns out people can do most of their work that they were doing in five days and four days. There's large parts of the economy, though, where this won't work, aren't there? I think it's a, it's a very interesting experiment. We don't uh, we don't uh, often have these real life experiments, so mm. it's uh, this is invaluable for economists and everybody else to look at. I mean, I've um, spent most of my career writing for the uh, Sunday Times, working for the Sunday Times, um, and I have to persuade people I don't just have a a one day working week. So uh, so this is um, oh come on, David. You know, I used to so work on the Independent on Sunday. I know how it goes. It's all you know. It's a four day holiday, uh, and then you squeeze one week's work into a day at the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So so it is interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a self selecting sample, so you have to take that into account. Um, but on the face of it, you know, from what we know of this experiment, it's um, it shows how much, if you like, hidden productivity and hidden efficiency there is within organizations. I mean, the way we measure productivity, and you were talking about that in the discussion, is the amount produced or the amount of value added per hour 
have worked. So if you can get if you can get the same out in uh, in fewer hours, you know, if it's 32 hours a week rather than 35, uh, then that's good news for the economy. If that could be could be adopted widely, it's it's an interesting one. You you asked whether it could be adopted widely. I mean, I mean, some in some cases, you know, there is there, this this happens. Um, already, I mean, you, you know, somebody, uh, some of your uh, listeners mentioned teaching. It's already the case, I think, that a lot of teachers get time away from the classroom for um, for uh, preparing lessons and so on, and it's their own personal preparation time, and other people stand in for them during that. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that this could be done. I think the the, the difficulty with it, as I see, is that we are, you know, we how do you organise? The norm of a four-day week with what we expect as consumers which is a kind of always-on society you know we expect um, shops to be open for longer we expect people to be responding you know in, when, when I was growing up you um, you know you couldn't get your your haircut for example on a on a Sunday because you know that wasn't done now we have Sunday trading now we have all those services which are offered seven days a week in most cases so it requires a lot of careful planning. It requires probably more people to cover. And I suppose businesses have to assess whether that cost of having more people on the staff to allow for a four day working week for everybody is worth the candle and, and is worth the, uh, the, the experiment, uh, joining the experiment. But it's, it's really interesting, I think. And I mean, part of me also thought that the, the, quite a lot of the gains they're talking about, big increases in uh in output you know revenues up uh people are happier that but um part of me wonder whether good employers would think about doing this anyway you know actually a good employers might every so often stop and take stock and say everyone's work why are you working such long hours you know there's no need to be doing that that actually there is quite a lot of slack yeah this is i suppose part of the productivity uh puzzle that actually maybe businesses could be encouraged to look at uh, their productivity it doesn't necessarily mean doing four-day weeks. Uh, it might just mean thinking: Are we working smart enough? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I think where people get frustrated and where, where the where the gains in well-being probably come is that, you know, people don't like to just and you, you'll know this as a former Sunday journalist as well that people don't like just having to be in the office. You know, if you um, if you um, if you think you can you, you've done what you need to do. Why do I need to stay here till 6.30 or 7 in the evening? You know, why, why can't I get on with life? And I think the idea that people have to stretch out their work to suit the time available is quite frustrating mm. when, you know, they think they could be doing other things. They think they could be getting on with whatever, whatever they need to be getting on with, whether it's childcare or other things. I think, I think those, those are where the benefits come from. Also, I mean, we're in a slightly different environment now because hybrid working is quite common. So getting rid of five-day-a-week commuting is not such a big issue as it, as it used to be. But I agree with you. I mean, many, many of those things could and should be achieved without necessarily going down a four-day-a-week um, uh, path. But um, for those who have done it and for those companies which think it's, it's benefited them, it's benefited their employees, I think, you know, we should encourage that. We should encourage the, the idea. And you can see it also becoming quite a, a good recruitment tool if you, yeah. you know for, for those organizations that offer a four-day week so so I think it's very interesting very exciting I, I just to say I've I've written about this you know a couple of times over the past decade or so first time I wrote about it then you know 
and you don't often get this as a journalist, you know, the next day, somebody, a firm in Leicester said, you know, we read your piece, we're adopting a four day week wow. from this month. And you, th you think, oh, oh my God, what's going to happen now? You know, <laughs> it's of, just a column. I didn't really what, do it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what happens if they go bust? And the next time, interesting enough, was, and you may remember this, was, um, was before the 2019 election when uh, John McDonnell, mm. um, the uh, shadow chancellor under um, Jeremy Corbyn, was was came close. I don't think it was ever in the manifesto, but came close to adopting this as a as a formal policy for the Labour Party. And uh, but without any 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 kind of backup ideas about how to how to improve productivity, how to address some of the things that uh, that you and your listeners have been have been raising uh, raising this morning. So so I think it's very interesting, and I think it's um, uh, you know as has been said, um, you know we we move quite quickly to you know, from 65 hours in the middle of the 19th century down to a norm of probably 40 hour week and now 35 probably for most white collar workers. So, uh, and it's paused there for quite some time. I think the average working week now is something like 37 hours. So, um, so it's interesting. I think, it, I think it's quite, it's, it's nice to have a real life experiment yeah, and yeah. Um, I, I wish it well. And is that just finally, is there a, I mean, there's a question about how big an impact it could have economically because uh, you'd probably need quite a lot of big take-ups to start seeing any difference in the productivity. And there's a tension, it feels a bit, between quite nice white-collar jobs in offices where it turns out with a bit less time on the space hoppers at the water cooler, you can get on and do your work in four days, versus people being treated terribly in Amazon warehouses or, uh, you know... People at the very lowest paid jobs are treated pretty badly by their employers. Um, and actually, they're probably the people least likely to take up something like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I noticed that we had some figures the other day showing that the uh, zero hours contracts are making a bit of a comeback as well. You yeah. know? So uh, so that is where people are kind of involuntarily working, you know, three days, two days, four days a week, you know, even though they probably like more hours because they'd like more pay so, <laughs> yeah so i think that's we, true you know, we, do, we, you know, we do we would like um you know everybody to be treated well and and it, it is a fact of life that some some jobs are horrible some jobs are dull and uh and and people would give their right arm if they could work for four days instead of five for the same for the same pay and those people as you as you correctly say yeah. are probably not the ones who are being offered this this yeah, option yeah. you know so it's uh so it's so i think we should be uh we should be cautious about saying this is going to spread yeah. like wildfire across the economy. David, always good to speak to you. Thanks for that. It's David Smith, Economics Editor at The Sunday Times. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 